I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to Carissa McGee. In 2006, when she was only 16, she was a star basketball player at Mayfield High School and a Gatorade Player of the Year. But then, everything changed. McGee was charged after police say she stabbed her mother during an argument and her older sister Marie, who tried to intervene. Both were hospitalized, but survived. The details are much more complicated and involve issues of isolation and mental health. But ultimately, she entered a no-contest plea to charges of attempted murder and was sentenced as an adult to 21 years. At age 17, she was incarcerated at the Western New Mexico Correctional Facility in Grants, alongside much older women. Due to good time and other adjustments to her sentence, she was granted parole after serving about nine years. Since her release, McGee has proven that she has turned her life around. She's returned to her love of basketball, officiating middle school and high school basketball games for the New Mexico Activities Association. She's also created her own nonprofit, Women in Leadership, an organization that helps women whose lives have been impacted by the criminal justice system. During this year's legislative session, lawmakers are considering Senate Bill 64, which would prohibit life sentences without the possibility of release or parole for serious youthful offenders. We'll talk about what's in the bill, how things are going, and why Carissa has been testifying in the legislature urging lawmakers to support it. We'll also be joined by Denali Wilson, an attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico, the ACLU, who has also been advocating for the passage of the bill. This week, I'm happy to have Carissa and Denali joining us. Carissa, Denali, thanks for making time to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy, happy to be here. Thank you. Carissa, I want to start out just by letting you talk about how this all started back in 2006. I certainly recognize that it isn't easy, but I do think it's important. Yes, thanks for the question. You are absolutely right. It's not always easy, but, you know, it's necessary. I absolutely feel that this is necessary. And it's funny because as you had mentioned, you know, that We might have been overthinking some of this stuff or maybe, you know, taking it to a high level of seriousness. But we we, I I really was uh, last night just reflecting on, you know, this the symptoms that I sometimes experience of, of like imposter syndrome. You know, sometimes I doubt that it's actually me that's doing these things. And sometimes I can't, you know, believe that. Uh, it's it's me actually me i second guess myself you know the whole struggle and all that but you know when i think about those and i have that and i struggle kind of with that imposter syndrome like really questioning is this going to be me you know when i'm doing things like a podcast or getting interviewed by the albuquerque journal and being on the front page you know i 
I, I'm cognizant. I'm very aware that I'm struggling with that imposter syndrome, but it's still something that I, I kind of battle with in my head. And last night, as I was getting ready uh, for today, uh, I had mentioned this to my partner about what I was feeling. And she looked at me and, and she told me, you know, Carissa, it's wild that you feel that way because you have shown and, and you continue to show what a second chance can do for a violent youthful offender. And when she said that, it, it like hit me. I was like, yeah, that is absolutely true. That is something that I am 100 percent certain of that, you know, I, Carissa, every day, I am a great example of why second chances are not only deserving for our youthful offenders, but they can be essential for the health of our communities. And, you know, I say that confident and boldly as I do, because to your question, Damien, I am not the same girl I was when I was 16. I'm not that same person that, you know, on March 27th in the wee hours, uh, 2006, you know, extreme experiencing one of, you know, a, a major mental health crisis. I, I am no longer that, that, that child, that version. Sometimes it feels like that person, like I have evolved so much and so, yeah, I, I really needed to hear that and, and be reminded. And I, I need that kind of reminder that I am doing these things and that I am a great example, you know, because the, the demons from the past and the, those, the traumas from the past, while they are not something that I uh, have at the forefront of my mind and it's not blinding me, it's still things that I carry with. It's still a part of who I am. Because even though I'm no longer that 16-year-old Carissa who was struggling with her mental health, struggling with her sexual orientation, you know, really trying to navigate as a junior in high school through all of these things, I may not be that version, but she's still a part of who I am. And I carry that Carissa with me everywhere I go. Carissa, I remember that day, actually it still kind of stands out in my memory. I was a DJ at Hot 103 mm -hmm. uh, when it happened. And I remember learning about it, reading about it, you know, maybe on the Las Cruces Sun News website and being shocked. I wonder if you look back on that now and like you said, you're, you're not the same person. How do you view what happened back in 2006. Now I'm able to view it with a brand new or just a, a very new perspective, refreshing perspective um, that is complemented by maturity, wisdom, uh, education, and just time to heal. So I see that night or, you know, I, I call it the night because it was dark, but um, I see those early hours of March 27th as a, as a time of just great despair. There was pain and trauma that I was experiencing, that my mother was experiencing, that my sister experienced, and the community, the community at large eventually experienced. So that night for me was just um, very dark and isolating. And when I think back, it's it's something that I actually do quite often. Actually, I relive and, and go and and really just kind of sit with that memory, you know, often because that is that's the time for me that I I wish I could have been present for 16 year old Carissa as the version of me now, you know, as the mature woman that I've, I've grown into. 
um, so that I could have talked with her. I could have hugged her. I could have held her hand and told her that there is another way. And so I, there's a lot of uh, emotion about that night and reliving it that that really just helps me to, you know, stay grounded in my present time and be reminded of the motivation and the inspiration that I have uh, to continue moving forward with what I'm doing today. And so, you know, that's when I look back, I, I see Carissa and hurting, fragile 16 year old Carissa, who was on the brink of making one of the worst decisions of her life. And I grieve for her. I look back at, you know, my mom, Anita, and what she was going through and just the injustice that she had to face that night. It is something that still, you know, it, it troubles me today to think that she had to experience that at the hands of her own flesh and blood. There's a lot of pain and um, just heartache that comes from knowing that that's what it was. And then I think about my sister who, you know, that night she became my hero. I think about Marie and, you know, when she walked into the room, the, the look on her face, ah, it is something I will never forget because the look on her face said more than I could ever say in my life. It had a feeling that is indescribable. And, um, you know, she had to face something that was completely out of her control. And the fear was extremely apparent on her face, but her actions were that of a superhero. You know, Marie didn't hesitate. She came right in and she saved not only my mother's life, she saved my life uh, for her intervening. And, you know, so when I look back at that night, there's a, there's a, a mix of emotions, but what it really is centered around is, you know, feeling pain and just a lot of empathy for the individuals, you know, for, for the people and the versions of ourselves that, that were present, what they had to endure. It was really trying. It was really trying. You entered prison at age 17. On a previous episode of this podcast, we spoke with Darcy Morrison, who was mm -hmm. 17 years old when one night in November 1992 was present at the murder of Adam Price south of Albuquerque. She's still serving a life sentence plus 18 months. I understand you knew Darcy when she was incarcerated? Yes, I did. I still do. You know, Darcy, it was speaking, you know, that night for me, March 27, 2006, you know, we fast forward to my sentencing day, just, you know, July of the next year, 07. And, you know, I get my 21 year prison sentence for, you know, to be served in an adult facility. And, you know, I, I remember how depressing that was and having to be transported to the prison and, and, you know, driving up to what looked like my coffin, what felt like my coffin. I thought I would, was going to die there. And I just remember how heavy and, and depressing that feeling was. And, and when I got to the compound and I, I was 17, when I hit the compound and, you know, Darcy was there, she was actually somebody who was housed in similar settings because we were in single cells, you know, so she and I, I, I knew her, basically for my entire incarceration at the prison facility. And I remember doing my time with her. She was a very gentle spirit. We both worked in the dog program, healing hearts together. 
And you, you can't tell me anything else. Dogs know people's spirits. Dogs <laughs> know people's energies, right? And Darcy was actually the person in the program that when we had a very troubled dog, she would get them because she had this energy and spirit about her that was so welcoming. And so, you know, Darcy was very gentle and kind and, and nice and loving. And she shared her knowledge with anybody that was willing to listen but, you know, very intellectual. So it's kind of hard sometimes to keep up, but just just an all around. Well, she, she, she spends all her time watching Jeopardy. So, uh, OK. And knowing all the answers. I don't understand. <laughs> Somebody could have a memory. It's very impressive. And yeah, don't ever uh, compete against her in Jeopardy. Sounds like, will- sounds like a, a good mentorship. Yeah, no, it wasn't really. It was a really good. I, I would call it a friendship that we really engaged ourselves with. And, you know, I, when I left in, you know, 14, I get released and I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm doing everything I can do. I roll around in, in my supervision and just trying to evolve even more as the woman I was becoming. And then, you know, March uh, 19th, 2019, I finally, you know, 13 years after entering the system, I'm, I'm finally released completely free. And it was a, such a gratifying feeling. And I was so motivated, so on fire with this second chance I had been granted. Uh, you know, I team up this energy that I'm carrying. I, I meet somebody else who also has that similar energy, Stacey Burleson, who I actually did time with as well. We team up together here in Albuquerque and we're like, we want to do something for women who are impacted by the justice system. We didn't feel that we got the best kind of support while we were incarcerated, while we were transitioning out, and definitely not post-incarceration. So we wanted to create something that was a safe haven for that population. So we developed a, a nonprofit called Women in Leadership. And this got started January of 2020, right? Dun, dun, dun. Right before the pandemic hit us. Here we are trying to what launch. A, what a great time to start up a brand new project. You know, it was well-timed. It was well-timed. We, you know, we're, we're on fire. We want to do this. The pandemic doesn't slow us down, right? We still are motivated to help this population. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, women in leadership is still thriving. You know, we've, we've gotten ourselves off the ground a little bit, and we've actually connected with one of the, the prisons, uh, one of the women's prisons here in New Mexico, right over in Grants. It wasn't the same prison facility that we served our time at, but it was right next door to it. So, you know, it still felt like it was a calling for us, like we needed to be back there. And we started that relationship. Uh, the warden, Miss V Hill over there is fantastic. She supports what we're doing. And so she invites us in. She's like, you know, bring your material and what you have in and, and let's see what we can do. Well, the material that we actually have is a curriculum called Real Talk. And Real Talk was developed by myself and two other women when I was serving my prison time. So you know, it was kind of monumental that we were getting invited back into the women's prison to reintroduce this curriculum that was created by the women incarcerated. It was, you know, it was just such a a wholesome feeling to have. And I remember the night before we started that class, this real talk class, I was having this thought of like, man, this is kind of hard to do. Going back and teaching this curriculum, what is it going to do for me? Well, I have this ritual, like I shared earlier, I visit March 27, 2006 often because it's a grounding place for me. It humbles me. It reminds me of how far I've come. 
And so I did my little ritual where I sit down and I think about all these major milestones from my life, from that date, all the way until the present time. And I walk myself through all the years of, of growth, development, achievement, failure, all of that. I want to ask you about that because I want to know about the process of turning things around during your time in prison while you were incarcerated. Yeah. Yeah. I can, you know, give a, a, a mini little ritual right now because I definitely take myself through those pieces. And if I leave anything out, I just like to share that, you know, I did publish a book. I wrote one and, and self-published. It's called Trust Your Struggle. And it's a novel based on my true story. So um, that also can fill in maybe some general ideas and, and gaps of my story. But, you know, I'll start with this when after I had been sentenced um, to 21 years. Again, this was July of 2007 and I'm, I'm being carted off to uh, get ready for transport. And, I, you know, I, I'm just, I, I cannot see past the end of my nose. I am so trapped in my mind. I was incarcerated well before I was ever actually incarcerated. My mind was so locked down because I had been sentenced to 21 years a term of, of life that I had yet to live. Therefore I could barely, I could not fathom that amount of time. Right, it, it was, felt like a life it was longer than you had been alive. Yeah. And nobody at that time had really taken, uh, you know, taken it upon themselves to explain to me the system and good time and with good behavior, what I could do with that 21 sentence, 21 year sentence. So, you know, I just, I went my first, um, it was about five months just thinking that I was going to do 21 years flat. So I get transported over to the, the prison. I shared, you know, I drive up and it, it looks like a cough and it looks like my like hell on earth. And I'm about to walk right into it. And I do. I remember the first, gosh, it was a, quite some time. Uh, it was about three years of my prison sentence while I was there that every single day I contemplated suicide. Every single day I thought, what for what? Live for what? I have nothing to aspire to. I'm not going to amount to anything. The system has stripped me of everything. I've stripped myself of everything. Um, the, the kind of accountability that I was experiencing, uh, experiencing at that time was rather limited compared to how I feel about it now. At that time, you know, when I was 17 years old, 18 years old, still in my teens, I was thinking accountability meant to say I did it. You know, if I did something, I have to own up to that. And that's what that was the beginning and end of accountability to me. I couldn't really process at the time that it also included having a, a, a rich understanding, a, a deep understanding of consequences and that, you know, my actions lead to particular consequences. I hadn't yet made that connection. You know, I, I just my brain really wasn't able to, to think that way. Right. So what I did think about was suicide. I thought about ending it, getting, you know, being done with it. And, you know, I was just like any other, any other child, any other young adult, I was maturing every single day. Little did I know it's really hard to watch because maturing is kind of like watching the paint dry. You might see some difference, but it, it really, it's kind of a before and after it's type like, of experience. like watching a child grow. <laughs> you, you, you don't wouldn't. notice the difference day to day, but you know, after, after five years, you definitely see a difference. Pretty remarkable, indeed, a remarkable difference. And that's that's exactly what I had uh, been experiencing, you know, mentally. My brain was starting to develop. So, you know, 2010 rolls around. I'm about 20. 
maybe 21. And I've got, you know, some skin in the game in the prison system. I, I, and I've known the way around a little bit. And I've realized that, you know, I'm around all these other women and I don't know anything about them. I don't know anything about these women. I just know I've been hurting this whole time. And I get, I was fortunate enough to be introduced by this project that is from Project Echo. It is a harm reduction model that we have inside of all of our prisons right now. But back in 2010, I was uh, one of the first groups ever trained to be what we call peer educators. And the responsibility of a peer educator is to take the knowledge that we receive from the university uh, where Project Echo is um, stationed at. That's that's where it resides. It's at the University of New Mexico. A peer educator is supposed to take the knowledge from you know, that is given to us about harm reduction, keeping our safe from infectious diseases and and just having general um, health efficacy, you know, just knowing what it is to be healthy. And our job is to spread that with uh, all of all, all of the population around us. And so I got involved with that peer education and I started to connect with the women around me. And in that process, we were introduced to this concept that Community plus service will equal purpose. 2010 was a pivotal year of my incarceration because I got introduced to the concept that if I can be of service to the community around me, I will find a purpose. And when you find a purpose, there's not really much that can stop you. Right? You are really driven that to have hope, to have a reason. I mean, that is what you lose first and foremost when you are incarcerated, hope and a purpose. Yeah, it it kind of wipes away that hopelessness. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's just the sense that comes from incarceration. So, you know, that was a pivotal pivotal year for me. And I progressed, I, in 2012, right, I'm, I hit this mark where I'm 18 months to the door and I have this epiphany that release is going to be, you know, upon me. I had this fortunate situation where I had a second chance. I had light at the end of the tunnel. And there's something about hitting that 18 month mark that really lit me on fire because I had, I have a mentor in my life who's actually my public defender, Rory Rank. I always call him my cowboy because anywhere he goes, this dude is in a cowboy hat, cowboy boots. I know, I know Rory. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, the cowboy, right? Yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he has, he always would sign, you know, um, his letters or his documents or, you know, messages to me with this philosophy that we, we love, we live, we laugh, we learn and we live a le- and we leave a legacy. Well, at that 18 month mark that like really meant something to me because I, I had reflected, well, I had learned to love. First and foremost, I'd learned to love Carissa again. I had definitely uh, lived because I had stopped being incarcerated in the mind. I had evolved and learned how to deal with my mental health, sexual orientation. I definitely laughed. There's plenty of of goodness and good hearted people um, behind bars. And, uh, you know, I had absolutely learned. I probably learned more in that span of my life. I don't want to say than ever because I still have hopefully a lot to live, but it was a significant chunk of learning for me. The one thing I wanted to do was leave a legacy. And I thought, how can I leave a legacy in a place that's not 
something that people aspire to. Like it just, it was kind of conflicting. And I thought, well, if I can be of service to this community, right. And if I continue to hold on to my purpose, it will reveal itself, whatever that legacy is. Well, I was um, also involved with the church group and there was two women who were deeply committed and, and, and involved with the church um, services that were there. And, you know, we got to kind of brainstorm together and we're like, we want to serve our women and we want to leave something behind that they can hold on to. Let's start a program so that they can keep it running. And that's where uh, Real Talk was first born. Uh, we just put our brains together. We did a needs assessment with the women at the prison so that we could hear from them and create a program that they actually wanted. And that was really what Real Talk was designed to do, support the women who are incarcerated. And I got to lead that project. Um, you know, I was learning some other talents that I had. I actually am pretty good at writing curriculum and teaching and coaching. I, I have that in me. So, you know, I was leading this group of Real Talk and I had a group of mentors that, you know, we were doing basically the same thing that Echo had taught us, which was teach your population what you know. So I got to do the last 18 months of my time doing that. And I loved it. And when I hit the release, when I like hit the door for my release, there was something a part of me that felt like I had completed everything I could have possibly done with my time. Right. I had, I had done that and I felt good. made the most of what you my, could accomplish during your time there. Absolutely. And you know, that, that effort that really went in, it's just a mark of the resiliency that all youth have. We all like children can go through some of the most traumatic things and still come out on top. It's the resiliency that we're all gifted with. Like that's something innate in us. And so I was really just being already an example that, you know, you can enter the system maybe one way. I entered it as a violent youthful offender and what I exited as, you know, in a, in a decent amount of time, right around nine years, I was I had evolved into a mature woman who was ready to face this thing called life and was committed to being a good human being. And everything in me wanted to show my mom, my sister, 16 year old Carissa, my community that. I was as sorry as I possibly could be, but I, I could not undo what I had done. So all I could do was move forward and do it in the best light possible. So that's how I left the prison, feeling motivated to inspire other people to hopefully be a prevention to other youthful offenders. So they didn't have to experience what I experienced. And, and that was, that was something that was, you know, like a springboard for me. I transitioned back out into the community. I mentioned 2014 and, you know, I was really just committed to, you know, what I had said, being a good, a good human being. And I got to join Project Echo formally as an employee, which is an amazing opportunity. Um, I worked for the university and, you know, along that walk, like I said, I, I ran into Stacy after I completed my supervision. I'm I'm so happy that you said 2014 because math not being my strong suit, I thought it was 2016. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, tell me about that adjustment and what it was like for you. Well, while I was really committed and excited about my second chance and just really 
I was, I was motivated in a way that's really hard to put in words because when you have this kind of appreciation, when you walk outside and, you know, it is for what other people might describe as a, as a windy, crappy, you know, ugly kind of day, I would be walking outside with my arms in the air, jumping up and down and letting, you know, whatever the gust of the wind and the dirt hit me in my face because it was so freeing to know that I had the choice to be outside. Um, I had the choice to go sit by a tree. Not a, not a bad day for you. Not a bad day. You (laughs) couldn't, you couldn't make one up for me. And while that was true, I was still experiencing a lot of uh, stress and pressure. I was an adult in society, which I had never experienced before. I was expected to have a job, didn't know what that was, hadn't filled out her resume. I was expected to pay taxes. I didn't know what that was or how to do it. I mean, I had missed so much of the crucial uh, transition time for any adult to go through, to be successful in the society. And I was pressured to learn that today, like that day, that hour, I should have known it yesterday. And And if I didn't know it or if I couldn't catch on quick enough, then the place that I would result would be in where I'd end up is back in prison. So, I mean, to have that kind of threat over you is daunting and intimidating to to degrees that, you know, it's it's something that we should maybe reconsider because uh, the fear of failing often leads to failure. And the, the more you put that pressure on you. Um, the higher the stakes become, the more reckless people can be. It feels like it also may lead to this imposter syndrome that you started talking about at the very beginning. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, Like, this is me. I can't believe I'm supposed to be doing these things. And if it wasn't for the support of my community, Project Echo, the university, um, I was also supported by the the state credentialing board. Uh, They, you know, were encouraging of me to go get my certification as a community health worker where I could take my lived experience and use it towards good, something that could earn me an income and and continue to keep me committed to the community. And really what ultimately helped with my transition outside of this amazing support that I had found in the community you know, was this opportunity to reconnect with the sports that I love? I I miss basketball in way during my incarceration in ways that I think back like that was a, a very tough love to have lost at an early age. Did you get to play when you were incarcerated? Uh, I, they had a gym and a basketball of sorts, but I mean, it, what, that was not the purpose. Therefore, it was not. The, main, the maintenance of it wasn't upkept. It was, it was right. kind of insulting to the game, but, and I definitely didn't have basketball shoes to be out there playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Not, not the optimal circumstances. So how, how did you get involved with officiating basketball games? I am one of the strongest community members that I connected with was actually my partner, Martina. She had um, been officiating basketball uh, for I think three years at the time, and she was taking a break from it and, you know, going back into the coaching. She just loves basketball. Any any place she can get in, she will. Uh, and she was like, well, you know, why don't you take, you know, backfill some of my place? Like they're losing an official. You can join. You know, let's let's get you involved. And I thought I have a felon and, and not only just a felon, I have a violent felon that was 
you know, a hot topic for quite some time. I don't think that they're going to let me on the court. Who's going to trust me? You know, this was still back in 2000. um, I think it was 16 at the time, 2017, when I first started. And she said, just try, you've got to try. So I was like, all right, you know, like I I need to figure out how I'm going to move forward with telling my story. So I just went out on a limb and I reached out to Dana Pappas. She was the head of the official at NMAA. And I just told her my whole truth laid it all out there because there was that accountability piece I was talking about. I was, you know, one thing I I did is I said, this is what happened, but I at least had learned in addition to that, that my bad actions resulted in bad consequences. Therefore I knew now that my good actions could result in good consequences. And that is my, that is my story. I have learned now that that that's what life really is. And I presented that to Dana. She invited me in to have a conversation. And from there, she, you know, she said, we're going to go forward with this. We're going to allow you to officiate. Let's start low and just work you in and and see where we go. And we went game by game just to really see, is this going to work? Am I okay? Are you okay? Is is the community okay? Like, is anybody going to raise the red flag? Nobody raised the red flag. In fact, what I found out is because I went back on the court, And people who had known my story, what they saw was hope. And they were actually so proud and happy to know that I had been given a second chance to come back out into the community, a redeemed individual, and still trying to get back to the game that I had clearly loved before my incarceration. And I've gotten many, um, you know, people coming up to me, telling me that they support what I'm doing and they wish me well. I've had ADs. Um, email me and and just give me the support and, you know, even actually reach out to me to see if I'm willing to go talk to some of their kids because their kids are struggling or going through a difficult time and they're unsure of how to communicate because they they hadn't, you know, maybe gone through some of the, the struggles that I had gone through so I could relate. And knowing that I could be of service in the game that I love so much and I can be of service to the population that I wish I would have had when I was that age. It just, man, that talk about redemption, talk about being able to fully live uh, to my fullest potential. It, it feels so good. It motivates me. And I want to give this feeling of possibility, this feeling of hope, this feeling of a second chance and what you can do with it to as many people as I can but especially to the individuals who are incarcerated right now for crimes that they committed when they were children. I want to give them hope too, because I believe that they deserve second chances because if I deserve one, they deserve one. But that's how I got back involved with the officiating. It was a a step-by-step and a risk and a risk that paid off. That's really remarkable. And this would be a good time to start talking about Senate Bill 64. Denali, I want to start with you kind of explaining what this bill would do if it's passed. Thanks, Damien. Um, And I think I just want to start by saying that I think Carissa's story is one that demonstrates just the great moral importance of this issue in our state, right? The issue of extreme criminal punishments imposed on children. Um, and an issue, as you as you mentioned, that is currently before lawmakers in Santa Fe right now through Senate Bill 64. 
Denali, I, I hate to jump in here, but we should point out this is probably a good time to also mention that we're recording this on the afternoon of Friday, February 10th. And there is another committee hearing coming up soon. That's true. So um, we're expecting to be in Senate Judiciary next week, uh, hopefully um, before this airs, but sometimes things move slowly. So we'll continue to update folks and, and listeners as the bill progresses. So what would this do if it passes? Well, um, the bill does two really important things. Um and, and like I said, you know, this is this is a moral invitation uh, that New Mexico is is facing. And and I think um, that that it's people like Carissa who show us who we might be closing the door to and what our communities might miss out on if we reject the invitation to give people who cause harm when they're children, if we reject the invitation to give those people a second chance. But the bill does two really important things. First, it will end life without parole as a sentencing option for children. The United States is the only country in the world that sentences children to life without parole. And within the U.S., more than half of the states have ended the practice, but New Mexico hasn't. So that's the first thing. The the bill would ban life without parole as a sentencing option for children. And second, the bill gives youth who've already been sentenced to extreme adult punishment the chance at parole after 15, 20, or 25 years into their sentence, depending on the crime for which they were convicted, in order to ensure that children who we know are capable of reform and rehabilitation, that that children be given the opportunity to, to do just that, to have a chance to grow. And, you know, you might be interested to, to know, and I know we've talked a little bit before where this idea comes from. Um, and especially as, right. as a lawyer and a lawyer at the ACLU, you know, I could talk about the U.S. Constitution and changes to constitutional law. And that would all be so true because since 2005, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has significantly narrowed the ways in which children can be delivered the most extreme of criminal punishments that are available under our law. Specifically by eliminating mandatory life sentences for violent juvenile offenders. Right. You're exactly right. And this state legislative reform, SB 64, um, is within that same vein of change. And I, I could tell you that, um, you know, this reform comes from the Constitution and, and New Mexico needs to enact this law in order to avoid the kind of expensive litigation that um, that I pursue as a lawyer in the state and, yep. and that the state then has to defend these excessive and extremist sentences. You certainly aren't uh, an expert to, to uh, qualified to speak to this probably, but it also brings it in line with brain science and and how juveniles' brains develop as they become adults. You're absolutely right. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court relied on, right? So we can point to the Constitution. We can point to the science that that was based on, um, you know, that, that says that children are more susceptible to peer pressure and the pressures of their environment, an environment that is rarely in their control. They tend to pursue risky behaviors and struggle to evaluate risks and rewards, those kinds of things. But, and this, and this is what I wanted to say, it's more than that. Right. This is it's more than 
you know, scientifically supported. It's more than constitutionally and legally mandated. This is morally mandated. And the Supreme Court and our scientific community have only begun to remark about the kinds of things that any person who has ever had children of their own or themselves been a child knows. And that is that children are works in progress and that all children, even those involved in significant harm, all children are capable of and worthy of redemption. And Denali, kind of speak to the fact that the bill as it's written, at least right now in its current form, does not guarantee release at 15 or 20 or 25 years for juvenile offenders. It just kind of provides the opportunity for a parole hearing. That's exactly true. This is not a get out of jail free card, right? We know that um, that children are capable of change, great, tremendous change. And we know that not everybody's going to be able to demonstrate that, but to hold out hope and provide the opportunity for people who will, um, that that is something that our community should value. The bill does not guarantee release. It's just about eligibility for review and creates the merely the opportunity for people to demonstrate the things that they've done over the years. And, and, and what I'll say too, is that the reality is that we just cannot know. We cannot know the person that someone will be by looking at them at 15, 16 years old. And it is unfair and it's wasteful to say that a person has not become the person that they they have. And it's even more unfair to not even bother to look, to see who they are, to see what they've done. Um, and right now, this is something that, that I'll, I'll say just to connect to, to some of the questions that you've asked Carissa about her sentence and Darcy, who was an earlier guest on, on this show and the disparity between those. Right now, children sentenced as adults in New Mexico are see a confusing and incredibly inconsistent patchwork of sentences. Some people have a second chance, um, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, as Carissa put it, and some people don't. And that has far more to do with where you were, when, when you were convicted and where, but when you were convicted, you know, was it during the height of the tap on crime era, the era of the myth of the super predator, you know, this, this myth of this uh, new generation of remorseless youth that was, that was on the brink of, um, of development that have had everybody around the country scared and increasing the ways in which we could, we could penalize children, where in New Mexico you were convicted in a, in a rural jurisdiction or a metropolitan area, it has more to do with who your public defender was or if you had private counsel. And I'll put a plug in here to say just a, a small New Mexico thing. Rory Rank is my is my neighbor. <laughs> so we're all so from such a small community. It has more to do with your race, your gender, the adult sentenced or children who have been sentenced as adults have received the, the sentences that they've received have far more to do with those or you know any number of other factors and very, very little if anything at all, to do with what we know about adolescent brain development, you know, what we know that children are capable of tremendous change or, you know, in the case of someone like Darcy, whose, whose case we explored earlier in the show, 
very little to do with actual culpability or participating participation in an underlying offense. And, and that's why a bill like uh, SB 64 is so important to create some consistency and predictability, because we know that when children cause harm in our community, it's important to hold them accountable in age appropriate ways that leave room for the profound potential that they have to experience positive transformation. Um, and that's what we hope to do with this bill. Carissa, can you share why this is so important to you? Yes. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to go back to that that story that were kind of the timeline that we're on, you know, after I had gotten off of supervision, March, you know, 2019 and got this women in leadership and we get invited to go back to the grants women facility to go take this real talk curriculum and, and have our class, you know, and I had done my ritual the night before and the day finally comes when we're walking into the prison and all these rooms, you know, we, we walk into a gym and we're trying to recruit 20 women to take this class. And, you know, it's a room of about a hundred, a hundred women had shown up trying to sign up. So, you know, we got to out for us. Uh, that's just how hungry that population is for something new change inspiring. And lo and behold, I walk into the gym and I see you know, the sea of women. And I mean, they're all in the same color. So it, it does become like a blur, but my eyes adjust because I've had eyes like this before and I can see the women for who they are, not the uniform. And there in front of me is Darcy. And wow, she has a smile on her face. And there I had just gone through my ritual the night before and I'm, I am just something in me. Uh, I felt like I'd been pierced in the heart with just this amount of grief, you know, looking at, at, at Darcy, this is October of 2022, mind you, when we're back in the prison. So I had gone from March 27, 2006, all the way to October of 2022. And um, that whole time Darcy had been incarcerated for a crime that she wasn't the perpetrator in, she, she you know, was, I had yeah, gone right. to my she, she was present for, and she was present for that's exactly. kind of the end of the story. Exactly. Being present, wrong place, wrong time, wrong crowd. And, and then here I am walking in when in my crime, I'm the sole perpetrator, the only one who committed the violent act. And, you know, I'm not asking for a harsher sentence for me. The thing that really sticks out for me about this bill is why the hell is Darcy still incarcerated? She is a woman who I've only known to be an adult. I did not know her as a child, admittedly, but the, the adult version of Darcy is kind-hearted, loving, accountable, thoughtful, remorseful, and still hungry to try to live her best life, which I think is remarkable. And when I saw her face and she was still able to smile, I just felt even more committed to this bill because, mm. you know, she is deserving of a second chance. And I will fight until she has that, because I know that as a youthful personally, as a violent youthful offender, I was too deserving of a second chance. And um, one was granted to me with some appropriate sentencing. And with my own efforts of good behavior, I contributed to that. But I was I was given that second chance. And I'm not the only one who was deserving of that. 
Um, folks like Darcy, folks like Bernadette Setzer, the women I did time with who have evolved from the child that they once were into women who have fully developed and matured, um, they are deserving of a second chance. So for me, I can't wait to embrace, um, you know, these individuals because I know for a fact that they're going to come out and make our community healthier, safer, and more prosperous like I have. Denali, where does it stand now? A similar bill last year was hotly contested. That, to me, seems to be less of the case this year. In your estimation, what's the prognosis? Thanks for that question. Yeah, the bill looks differently than it has. You know, we've worked really hard um, during the interim session to consult with um, a number of stakeholders, including the Association of District Attorneys, um, to create uh, a version of the bill that that is is one that that they can tolerate, right? So we we work to <laughs> a create more a, palatable. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we we work to create uh, a tier system within the legislation, and that means that in extreme and rare cases of very serious harm and loss of life, we're going to say we're willing to wait until 20 years or 25 years in in the more extreme of cases to provide somebody an opportunity, just an opportunity still um, for for review. And um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that those changes will invite both bipartisan support and a lot more comfort um, for our lawmakers and our executive branch um, uh, to to make this law, right? New Mexico, it's it's time for New Mexico to accept this invitation and become the 26th state to end life without parole as a sentencing option and for children and really believe um, and commit to policy the the belief and truth that that children are capable of change. What sort of impact would it have on people who are currently incarcerated? There are um, 75 people in New Mexico who are currently serving sentences that would be impacted by the bill, among them Darcy and, and other people who, who I represent. And for those people, um, it, it would mean the light at the end of the tunnel it, it, that Carissa talked about, um, right? And, and for people who've already served, people like Darcy who've already served far more than the threshold time, it would mean an opportunity right away to be reunited with family, to demonstrate to a parole board uh, the changes that people have made over the years. And, and if successful in, in, in demonstrating those things, an opportunity to return home and to, to really serve their communities Carissa, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, just that um, Denali's talking about. I, I know that our communities are hurting. We um, New Mexico is such a proud culture. We love La Familia. We love being connected. Um, our communities have been experiencing some fragmentation. We've been broken a little bit. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, with the restoration of you know, our loved ones coming home and, you know, having their family back with them united can help to just restore some of that feeling, that sense of deep culture and love that we have here in New Mexico. And so I, I know that it would be great, of course, just in general to be released from prison. It's such a freeing and, and just a great, great opportunity to have. But, you know, our community is in need of that. We need to have these members come back home because they're going to be members that help us to see and love, you know, the small things, have appreciation in the small things in life 
And I think that we're all due for that reminder. Carissa, as I understand it, at least as of the last reporting I was able to find, you hadn't been in contact with your family, but were open to the idea. Has that changed? No, that that still is true. Um, as it states, I haven't been uh, contacted um, and and because of the nature of my crime and the situation, you know, I, I really will leave it up to them to initiate that. So I do remain open. But as of now, there has been no outreach and no efforts to reconnect. Is there anything that either of you would like to add that we haven't talked about today? Just that I continue to be so grateful to the Las Cruces Sun News for covering this important issue and to you in particular for taking the time to talk with us and that people in Las Cruces have the opportunity um, and other listeners have the opportunity to support this bill, right? This is uh, an issue that um, you can ask your your lawmakers and, and committee members um, that the the legislation is before to support. Um, so it's SB 64. And we ask folks, um, you know, if, if this was a compelling story to you to please reach out to your lawmakers and, and ask them to support. Carissa. And I just like, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, knowing that this is coming from Las Cruces, the community that I was uh, a part of when I committed my crime. Um, I, I hope that, you know, if there is any any doubt about the potential of an individual being able to, a, a youthful offender being able to redeem themselves. I just, I, I welcome you to look at my story, reach out to me if you want, but please see me as an example of the what this bill can do um, and what second chances uh, can provide for people. So, you know, if there's ever a doubt, please, you know, don't hesitate to reach out because I'm more than willing to share why, why we should support this bill. Thank you again, Carissa and Denali, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Carissa and Denali for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com for all of us at The Sun News. Thank you for the privilege of your time.